The UCSF Rosamond Institute is a beacon of hope for a healthier and more equitable world. Its mission is to unleash the full potential of healthcare innovation and empower the next generation of game changers. By connecting with a network of investors, payers, mentors, and industry experts, the Institute provides an inclusive platform for innovators to bring their transformative solutions to life. And it doesn't stop there. The UCSF Rosamond Institute is dedicated to promoting equity and serving underrepresented and underserved populations who stand to benefit the most from these cutting-edge solutions. With our partnership with MedTech Venture Partners, a fund that invests in early-stage health technology startups, the Institute is leading the charge in a new era of healthcare innovation. Join us on this incredible journey to improve lives and create a better world. To learn more, please visit us at www.rosamaninstitute.org. One of the challenges in commercializing science is sometimes we come up with really interesting new breakthrough, new insight, but it doesn't always a company make. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so making that distinction of, I know what the need is, I know how this will be used, I know what problem I'm solving, versus Mm -hmm. science for science's sake, and then kind of chasing, what do we do with this? Mm -hmm. Um, We always talk about being very intentional as to when that firing gun goes off when you take outside capital, because once that happens, you're running a race and and mm-hmm. and others are are pushing on the timeline and the milestones and you don't have endless time. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. It is not easy breaking out into the unknown. Being one of the first to try something new or different is challenging, especially as an entrepreneur. Linda Fisburn, a managing partner at Breakout Ventures, knows exactly what this is like. Breaking out from the traditional translational research mold and venturing into a new space, Lindy has opened new avenues into the creative bioscience sector. Seeking to build the future that is powered by science Breakout Ventures is a hub for creative bioscience entrepreneurs. Today, I'm so excited to speak with Lindy about her journey to developing both Breakout Labs and Breakout Ventures, as well as discuss key insight into investing in startups. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Lindy. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you. I'm glad to talk with you all. I know it's been so long and I know we talk about having you in our podcast before the pandemic and then gosh, take me this long to finally get you (laughs) in here. I I think everybody's been delayed on most things for the last two years. Yeah, but it's good to see you. And um, I thought it would be good to, I mean, what you've done with the Breakout Venture is really amazing, but I thought it was really interesting uh, for a lot of our listeners to hear about your journey, what took you to where you are today? Wow, let's see. We'll try to give a short, a short version of that. Um, You have to to really go back um, in in time into a way back machine where I would say the investing markets and 
the interest in the space that I'm focused on was really different 10, 12 years ago. So if today Breakout Ventures invest in what we call creative biosciences, this intersection of biology and chemistry, you know, combined with technology or tools of scale from other industries to make big leaps, things you've never, you know, heard of, expected, thought about in human health and uh, in sustainability. I started in that world, you know, 10, 12 years ago when that was not, it was not a defined world. Um, you basically had the Human Genome Project had published. You started to have real conversations around biology as a system that could be designed and somewhat akin to predictable like software. Um, but the investing world was still very enamored with you know, food delivery apps and Web 2.0. Um, life sciences was more uh, traditional, conventional, you know, how do you take an asset and advance it in a, in a pretty lockstep type of way? And I had the opportunity to um, join Peter Thiel, the Thiel Foundation, and really explore the question of, you know, if you had a bit of time, vision, and some flexible capital, how would you really help drive innovation forward? Um, and out of that exploring, I developed what became Breakout Labs, which is really the precursor to our current Breakout Ventures. And Breakout Labs back in 2010-11, as I said, the world looked very different from an investing standpoint in this space. And you were just really on the forefront of you know what what we've been leaning into of this democratization of science. So you started mm -hmm. to have tools and technologies that provided an on-ramp into biology and chemistry where you didn't have to have a PhD to be able to engage. Um, and so we saw this wider talent pool starting to be really interested in pulling, you know, things that you know well, technologies out of universities so that they could get out into the wider world and have an impact and build a business and change people's lives. And there had been all this support for kind of the technology, computer science folks doing that. And it was new for the scientists to be seen as a potential CEO, as a potential founder of their own entity, rather than going and working, you know, for kind of the big guys in the space. Um, and so Breakout Labs was a revolving fund that allowed us to ultimately seed fund 50 of these very early stage companies um, and help them knock down some of that technical risk so that they were in a better position to attract a bigger team and attract that follow-on capital. Um, that the uh, you know Those founding CEOs will always be near and dear to my heart, and I feel like I grew up in this space with them um, mm -hmm. and you know, was cheering for them and beating them up in board meetings <laughs> and helping connect them to follow-on funders. Um, and basically, they were progressing well, and the market continued to to come our way, uh, which facilitated our team ultimately rolling out and starting a standalone venture fund, which is now Breakout Ventures. Um, and we're investing out of our second fund. Yeah, congratulations. Um, and maybe I can ask you a bit more on, like, you know, so when you're the Breakout Labs, part of the Teal Foundation, where's that vision, that idea came from? You know, sometimes when it seems like so... Like you're saying, like people at that time 
people were not, most majority of the people don't think that way. Like, where does that vision come from? Like, what was the process that result in come up with that vision? And then look where we are today. And, you know, it feels like you kind of knew back then. <laughs> I, I only I only wish it, it was um, as transparent and clear as it appears to be now. Um, I certainly did not know when we started that the pace at which this this sector, this tech bio sector would advance that would allow us to build successful funds in this space. I think that's mm-hmm. been the the bet and the hope, but you never know what the the slope or the trajectory was going to look like. Um, going back to really kind of that founding thoughts and impetus, um, I spent a lot of time looking at the amount of um, predominantly federal funding um, and then corporate and, and state also, but uh, federal funding that goes into major universities. I mean, you're sitting at UCSF, you guys know, right? Major universities across the country to really facilitate basic research. And it's it's phenomenal. And it's given you know America an amazing edge and been a huge innovation engine um, across industries. And I was starting to talk with so many of the, the beneficiaries of those grant dollars and and trying to understand, you know, are we getting as much impact out in the world as we could based on the amount of funding and support that was coming in for that basic research? And so really mm-hmm. started to dig in on what's often talked about as this translational problem. You know, sometimes in, in, in uh, you know, life sciences, we talk about this valley of death, but trying to understand how would you move from Thing that success at basic science to that early translational work that often happens at university to mm-hmm. then saying, how do you provide that off-ramp to actually commercialize and take these things forward? Um, and I mean, we were one part of this ecosystem that has developed really phenomenally in the last 10, 12 years that you guys are a big part of, of campuses providing physical space for scientists and students to actually work mm-hmm. on companies, you know, changing and evolving the IP landscape so that it was more attractive to, to build companies, um, being more willing to engage in licensing <laughs> that university science to their own scientists rather than to Pfizer, Merck, or you know, whatever big corporation was typically picking things up when it was ready. Um, and a lot more. Um, early financial support has subsequently been developed. Um, and so that that ecosystem looks very, very different than it did when we started 10 years ago. I don't think that I would do an analysis today and you wouldn't build breakout labs you know, the same way that we did in so many ways, which is great because the need, you know, it's not perfectly allocated, but in so many ways, the need that we were pushing on has been addressed. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's just interesting. What yes, you're speaking made me thought, made me think about, like you're saying, it seems clear now, but then back then it was not. But I think it's also I realized that even if it's uh, as you're doing this breakout labs that eventually become, you know, you're spinning off doing something of uh, breakout ventures, is that you adjust and adapt to the environment. And so that's why when you look now, look back, everything seems so clear. But I think back then, <laughs> exactly. it's probably not. <laughs> no, and, and, and when we started investing in the breakout labs companies, 
we honestly had no idea what the success rate or the survival rate would be because mm-hmm. there was not a a self ident there was not an ecosystem of investors that were self identifying as being willing to engage early on with scientific or technical risk that was outside of a traditional therapeutic pathway mm-hmm. and we were looking and and focused now so much on companies that are at these intersections that don't fit neatly into a traditional you know thesis or area of focus so we may have you know computer vision being leveraged in a diagnostic that's going to sit in the ER of a hospital and you know that is not your traditional story of of a diagnostic being built um and so we really had to become uh, well i mean you've been there like we laugh that we've thrown a lot of great parties and mm-hmm. and part of that really was figuring out and and trying to pull this ecosystem together and right. find out who was going to be part of it and who would engage with you know early on coaching some of those companies when they didn't have the same type of models or background or support that you'd seen in the more traditional tech industry. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting sometimes when you are outside the mold, what currently is what investors looked at is always very challenging as an an entrepreneur, like, you know, my story doesn't fit. Right. But actually when you don't fit, it makes you very unique and special. And so, I mean, you know, you've done this breakup lab and now breakup ventures. Like, can you share with us some of the companies that, you know, many of them are, like you said, is dear to your heart, but then, you know, do you have example that you kind of, you know, when you first met them and where they are now or the challenges and then how, what do you think that make them successful? Like, what are the characteristics that helps you identify this is the company that you want to put your effort in? Yeah, I mean, I think it is the the often often said anecdote in in venture and investing in life, in that this is a people business. It fundamentally comes down to whether it's that initial founder and their ability to attract people who are, you know, monomaniacal and see their vision and would follow them off a cliff to try to build that vision. And so you feel confident and you see them over and over again, being able to attract a team and being very comfortable and good at hiring people that are better, smarter, more experienced than they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that is, is a, a trait that we continue to see in companies that are successful, the the you know, the opposite or the challenge being those brilliant founders who then build a team that always ensures that they are quote the brilliant founder, but they're they're not leveling up, they're not hiring somebody more mm-hmm. experienced than them, and and they limit what's what's possible. Um, we have also found that we really like to see multiple multiple founders or at least um, uh, a founder that has another person or two with them at the beginning. This is really hard and it's really hard to do on your own. Um, right. And it it rarely succeeds, at least in our experience, really with that solo founder just plugging ahead. And so when I think about companies that from the beginning, that that team dynamic was so compelling 
Um, we have a company that came actually out of Stanford um, that was called Opus 12. Now it's called 12. That um, is an amazing combination of uh, two PhDs, actually two female PhDs who at the, that were at Stanford, who then um, met uh, a Stanford MBA. And the three of them started to work together on how would you commercialize this really revolutionary catalyst material that the two scientists had developed. But then the question was, what do you, what do you do with it? How do you make mm -hmm. it a, how do you make it a business and, and how do you grow it? Um, and so we met them back on the breakout lab side when they were showing very early on that they could take waste CO2, run it through this catalyst material and, and actually produce useful CO. So carbon neutral, carbon negative mm -hmm. products, leveraging waste CO. Um, and now subsequently they've gone on and replicated that technology, built multiple stacks. Um, I think probably their newest announcement is that they've shown that they can make e-jet fuel. So they have an agreement with, I think it's Alaska Airlines and Microsoft to do first fuel on a flight from San Francisco to Seattle um, that would allow you to dramatically, A, leverage waste CO2 and lower the carbon footprint um, of the aviation industry. So they've they, the team has stayed together and to my earlier point, continued to hire experienced folks from industry that have done versions of this business before um, to help them to help them grow and build the partnerships that it's going to take to see this all the way to you know true commercial scale. Yeah, no, it's like you're saying, it's you're right. It's about the people, people business. And you know, I'm sure that for the company 12, they I think in the beginning of anything, when you start building, it's always lonely. Uh, you need somebody to help you kind of like, somebody was telling me, it's like you're building, it's like a building a house. Uh, when you build the foundation, you don't really see it and it can be pretty, very discouraging. Every once in a while, you have to remember what the house is going to look like so right. that it gives you that. And I think having the team that you can share the burden and then encourage each other because you don't usually you're not down at the same time <laughs> you're you're hoping not to be <laughs> and, yeah. and I think that gets to that clarity of vision and mission mm -hmm. around uh, you know I think one of the challenges in commercializing science is sometimes we come up with really interesting new breakthrough new insight but it doesn't always a company make mm -hmm. uh, and so making that distinction of I know what the need is. I know how this will be used. I know what problem I'm solving versus mm -hmm. science for science's sake. And then kind of chasing, what do we do with this? Mm -hmm. um, we always talk about being very intentional as to when you know, that firing gun goes off when you take outside capital, because once that happens, you're running a race and and mm -hmm. and others are are pushing on the timeline and the milestones and you don't have endless time and right. and so i think for a lot of startups in our space recognizing when is the actual moment to take that first outside capital and have that firing gun go off and start to race is mm -hmm. really important and a lot of them live for a while 
on those early SBIR, STTR grants, which is actually where they should be until they're mm-hmm. able to be really crystal clear on the use, the need, the market, the why, the vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they need to wander around in the woods for a while, you know, they need to, they should do that on grants um, and really figure that use case out before they start running. Yeah, it's that's I like your analogy about what because you can't be on the race for unlimited amount of time. Um, I'm going to use that sometime. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And so, I'm, you know, as you know, we sit in university, UCSF, and so many of the faculty, the scientists, the clinician are always thinking about, you know, being also being in the Bay Area to see how, how you know, the big of the impact of innovation, you, the, you know, the ability to scale of your impact, right? And so what are the things that you've seen, like you work with this uh, Stanford PhD, what are the things that the trait, the care, I almost feel like, are you, because we all have a certain personality, but then how do you make sure that is the personality that hopefully can evolve so that it can <laughs> create something that can be where you, you want to be? Uh, yes. I mean, I think there's some venture funds that honestly do um, like the character assessment test to, to gauge how coachable someone is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I think we don't <laughs> we don't do it that way, um, but I think it is that balance of um, a very special person who can hold tight to a clarity of vision and mission, and yet also hear and listen and adapt to mm-hmm. the market, to the customers, to the investors, and you know what are what is what is that feedback. Um, and so I think being coachable while simultaneously um, having that grit and perseverance, that's a really special combo. Uh, mm-hmm. And it requires a certain amount of self-awareness that, that to understand kind of which mm-hmm. of those areas you're stronger in. Um, and so I think we're always we're always looking for that. And I mean, fundamentally, you're going to be working with people for a long time. These things mm-hmm. always take longer than anybody thinks they're going to. And, and so you also, you know, you want it to be someone that, that you want to work with. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think a big value add that we provide and investors can provide is not just the, the capital, which is obviously needed, but that's kind of fungible at a certain mm-hmm. point, maybe not today, but in different markets. <laughs> uh, but, but we should be, and investors should be, another another face, another cheerleader, another front person for that company out in the market. Mm-hmm. And, and then we're another set of ears, another set of feedback, taking right. things back to the CEO or to that, that founding team. Um, and you want that to be uh, uh, fun to some degree and you want that <laughs> to be a collaborative conversation. Um, it's really hard to front people and you know you can't front people that you don't believe in. 
Right, right. It's almost like I is you're another set of employee that instead of being paid is kind of invest exactly in your company. Um, and yeah, you're right. It's like you, you, you tend to become also like the business development person for that hundred uh, <laughs> percent. And it's hard if you don't believe in the team. Um, well, they they have to also have a narrative and a clarity of of their story that is is easy enough for investors, you know, folks one step removed to be mm-hmm. able to to repeat, to share, to take to market. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if the if the narrative and the story that, you know, the elevator pitch, the the cocktail party conversation is so convoluted or so confusing, then I can't be activated well, mm-hmm. you know, and I would argue that most folks in their network can't be activated well. And that's a that's a loss. And that presents a, a challenge because you're not getting getting the most out of everybody in your network. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, considering where your uh, focus area is tend to be very complicated science, heart science, and how do you convey in a simple way that people can understand and how do you, is that something that you coach your uh, companies to like come up with a simple way or you somehow, sometimes as an investor, you, you can also tell the story in a more simpler way compared to the entrepreneurs, but how does it work? Yeah, I think sometimes a little distance helps, um, <laughs> but but we focus on, you know, for any of these, these breakthroughs, this early science to matter in the world and to build a business, it has to happen at scale, uh, whether it's you're reaching the majority of a patient population, a certain customer set, you know, whatever whatever scale means. And so when you think about something that has to work at scale, that means you have to have a use case and a need that is somewhat obvious to explain. So for example, we, which then means I don't need to tell, you know, in the cocktail party setting exactly how the science works. So we just invested in a company called Surf Bio that has a new surfactant. So instead of having a whole conversation about the actual chemistry of the surfactant, what matters is that the surfactant, in theory, and what they're showing right now, could be used to make shelf-stable vaccines. Well, we've all just lived through the ridiculousness of trying to ship and store and distribute vaccines at an ultra-cold storage. And the cost and the time and the challenge that that presents, not only in the U.S., but obviously globally. So it is easy then for folks to understand the power, the business opportunity in the market, Mm -hmm. if you could take a vaccine and make it a shelf-stable vaccine Mm -hmm. that removes the need for ultra-cold or even refrigerated temperature and provides longer storage shelf life. Um, that would have changed this, the trajectory of this pandemic in a dramatic way. So mm-hmm. I think when you're clear on the value that the technology at scale can bring, that's the story people want to hear and understand. And then, yes, in diligence, you can go back and really be sure, is there a basis for believing the science and the tech is at a phase and a stage that that thing that we just got excited about can happen? And ultimately, mm-hmm. as an investor, you're doing both. But the company needs a narrative based in reality, <laughs> hopefully, uh, of, of what, the, what the big vision, the why, why does it matter? And mm-hmm. why does it matter at scale? Yeah. 
it's almost like focusing on like when you tell that story, the simple story is the impact that that people and when people understand the impact, the opportunity for scale. And because I think oftentimes as a scientist, like they're so excited about the science. <laughs> exactly. That's you know, the, doing that. So you've seen a lot of company throughout all these years. And sometimes you invest in a team that you think is like, it's a great team. And then it break down. Like what oftentimes is the cause of the breakdown and what can we learn from that? Well, fundamentally, we're all people and there are ultimately personalities. Um, and and so I think the, um, the open, honest, ongoing, upfront dialogue and knowing that that team can communicate that way is pretty critical. Um, and often where things go wrong, it's for the things that, that weren't said um, you know, or were shoved under the rug for too long. Um, and then I think it is a sense of, um, are we aligned around what we're building? Because if you're not fully aligned around what you're building, then you won't use your resources as effectively. And there's more room for conflict when you're trying to make the decision about how to use those resources. So if everybody knows very clearly where we're trying to get, then yes, you may have some dialogue decisions about how to prioritize the right steps, but but you're within a band that's manageable. If we're not really sure where we're going, then you've got a much wider band of opportunity for wasted resources, you know, studies that that give data that don't end up mattering because that actually wasn't the data that was really needed. Um, and that's when we've found, you know, teams can get crosswise with each other. Um, mm-hmm. building a startup is hard. Um, it's hard on the team. It's hard on their families and their relationships. <laughs> um, it's hard on their bodies. Um, and so I, I think, you know, it doesn't, as much as you can try to align at the beginning, there are natural points in that process where it may not continue to work for someone that was there mm-hmm. at the beginning. And so I think we also see that when done right, there are reasonable avenues to you know, have someone shift to being an advisor, you know, understand how you need to bring a different skill set into the business. Um, but I think that being transparent and honest about it then allows you to make those transitions without mm-hmm. necessarily blowing up the business. Um, and, and when you're not upfront about it, yes, you can, you can blow up the business. Uh, mm-hmm. if you're not keeping your eye on the, the bigger prize, you know, fighting over but, you know, 30% of zero is still going to be zero. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think sometimes the 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 money and the uh, the math of it gets lost for the bigger picture too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a personality, ego. Uh, I think when, when you're talking about transparency and being open and honest, that usually get hindered because of the ego. So I think having somebody can check their ego somewhere else. I think that's helpful. <laughs> and, you know, in, interesting, like, you know, sometimes when you think about, like you mentioned about the startup, I feel like you also went through the whole startup process yourself, right? Because you were going through, you know, doing the breakout, build the breakout labs and then yeah. raising money. And so in a way, you're an entrepreneur as well. Sometimes people don't think about that, 
But Julia, my uh, partner and I are very conscious of that. And we talk to our team about it, that that we are a startup. We're putting our, our processes in place, our culture. What do we want to build? How do we want to work with each other? And what's our North Star and what are our priorities? Um, and then I think what what does um, what often gets overlooked is, you know, VCs have to go back to the market and raise money every two, three, four years. And as painful as that process is and enormously time consuming, I think it's really important and it keeps you humble and it keeps you aligned with your entrepreneurs um, mm-hmm. when you have to do it and you have to see how much time it takes, how much energy it takes what it's like to try to sell yourself, you know, the ups and the downs, the the rejection, the ones where right. you think they're going to come in and then, you know, the 12th hour they back out. Uh, it keeps us aligned with our CEOs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's important because it is a very intense and humbling experience to go yeah. try to sell your wares to, to raise money. It's also an enormous responsibility to take in someone else's money, whether it's as a VC that's then going to invest it and is, you know, telling them and working tirelessly to try to return a multiple on that capital and, mm-hmm. and with our entrepreneurs trying to land the business such that they can return capital. Right. It's yeah. a heavy responsibility. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes, you know, we're so focused on our own problem set. And then when, you know, entrepreneurs talk to investors, you know, I think understanding the investors' dynamic too that they have to return capital is also is almost like you have to understand their pain point. And oftentimes yeah. they think about the pain point of the customer that they're going to sell the product to. But I think that's the biggest disconnect, or one of the biggest disconnects in fundraising is the entrepreneur, of course, thinks what they're doing is super important and valuable, and, and they should. I mean, that's mm-hmm. their baby. They have to be passionate and shepherd it. But to your point, um, if they're not aware of the responsibility and the criteria that the investor also has to live by, then I think they can end up, A, wasting time or really frustrated. Mm -hmm. Um, So we counsel our entrepreneurs to have a very clear understanding as much as possible of the funds that they're talking to, and then if you can, down to the partner or the you know principal mm-hmm. associate that you're talking to, understanding what vintage fund year it is. You know, everybody's like, oh, you know, here's big fund X, but right. if they're investing out of a fund that's five years old, four years old, then they're probably not going to write a brand new seed stage check. And, and they need you to be at the beginning of the next fund. Right. And so it is um, finding that right match of of timing and sizing and risk is a big part of it, which which in many ways then has nothing to do with the actual details of the idea that the startup is pitching. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think there's often they're not they're not well researched and they're not clear on on where that alignment needs to be. Yeah, I feel like being an entrepreneur you have to be constantly aware, not only about your team, your customer, your potential investor is constant listening and keeping your eyes open. And it's a, that's a lot. And, yeah. and, and I think in our, in our vein right now, um, and I think we've seen this in some of the universities of, 
you know, at times I think we may have pushed the 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 bar too far one way of saying everybody could be an entrepreneur, everybody should be an entrepreneur. That's not necessarily the case. And no. there's plenty of wonderful, brilliant, super talented scientists and and technologists who should stay close to the science. Yes. Um, and and they don't need to be and shouldn't be the entrepreneur that's trying to build the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that self-awareness is really important. Yeah. I think sometimes as human being or, you know, we always, it's so easy to be drawn to want what somebody else has, but not really fit with who you are and what make you, I mean, sure, we always think it's good to stretch outside your comfort zone, but I think knowing where you can uh, contribute the most, I think. Knowing who you are, again, being self-aware. I think the theme today is being self-aware. self-aware. Uh, <laughs> I know we are short out of time, but, but as I said, you, you're, you know, in a way you went through the whole entrepreneur journey as well. You mentioned being, even as investor, you know, you went through a lot of rejection. There's a lot of things that knock you down. What are your mantra that you tell yourself when things were hard? <laughs> um, I mean, I am fundamentally an optimist. I think to be in this business and to be an investor, you have to be. Uh, and so, um, I don't know, my mother would have always said that you have to always do the best you can and never be afraid. And if you know the meaning behind what you're doing, then that passion comes through and translates and makes it easier to get out of bed and do it again the next day. And when I see the technology and the potential cures and solutions and impact that our companies can have, that is far bigger than you know, the rough day of of, of pitching and, and not being successful with, with potential new LPs. Um, and so I think you have to, you know, if you really do believe deeply in what you're doing and the value of that, um, that helps enable you to keep going. Yeah. If I, were, well, if I were faking it or not, you know, passionately connected, it would be a lot harder to, to keep going after the rough day. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you, Lindy. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Always good to talk with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.